0: Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. There's people who are either sick and staying home or you're traveling abroad, and we hear from people all the time regularly who thank us for their ability to watch us online. So uh, by way of applause, could everybody in the room just say hello and welcome to everybody joining us online. We love you. Right now, we have members of our church family who are in Nicaragua, Uh, and they're watching our services in Mexico, and we have others around Canada, so welcome to whomever you are and wherever you are. It's so good to be together today. All right, can you believe we're into the last week of this stretch of our Revelation series? And uh, as we wrap up chapter 11, we're gonna be in chapters 10 and 11 today, essentially, we've hit the midway point of Revelation. And as you read the end of Revelation, as we sort of take the... Take in the big picture of everything we've looked at so far. The end of Revelation 11 is really—it could be the big, the end of it. Um, but as we talked about last week, chapter 12 and onward sort of does a slow down replay of the same kind of things, but from a different angle and just at a different kind of pace so that we can be sure to capture really important things again before we head into the real ending, which is a new beginning. It's fantastic. So next year, we'll pick up uh, at a few different junctures some more of our journeying through this very important book. Why is it so important? It was vitally important for the church of 2,000 years ago, and uh, I think as we're continuing to observe and discover together... It sure speaks to our lives in vivid and important ways right now, too, doesn't it? And for many people, I've heard from people who talk about this, it does so in kind of surprising ways or ways that they didn't expect. I've heard from some people who are saying, you know, I've read Revelation many times. I didn't realize it's about Jesus. In fact, he's everywhere in the book, and that's where our attention is to go. There's things we're to behold of him. There's important things we're to hear from him. 2,000 years ago, in the first 100 years of the church's history, um, after a strong and exciting start in the midst of controversy in sort of the epicenter of religion at that time, Jerusalem, the church began expanding outward and began filling the Roman Empire. And as it grew, the Roman leadership and emperor itself became very threatened and insecure about the influence of the church. So they started pressuring the church and persecuting the church. And in the years before Revelation was written, in one year alone, over 40,000 Christians were killed for their faith in Jesus. And so there was this uh, uncertainty and worry beginning to fill, fill churches. And so the seven churches that we read this letter being written to in what is now Turkey... Um, are receiving an important message to help strengthen their faith, they're realizing they have an important thing to make a decision about, compromise or faithfulness. And, you know, if we look at the big picture, do we ever experience social difficulties, cultural pressures that put us in positions where we have to evaluate compromise or faithfulness? Um, Our set of circumstances here in the Comox Valley are quite different than what it was like in the ancient world. However, at the same time, we do need an important message that speaks to us and encourages us towards faithfulness in our faith to Jesus. If we were to summarize the revelation into two words, it's this, behold Jesus. Now, if you can remember four words, there's a response to beholding Jesus. Worship is the first response. As you behold him, you'd have to work very hard not to feel... uh, Astonished by him or in wonder of his majesty and, and want to worship in a variety of different ways. And then in response to who he is, um, it begins to influence how we talk about him, how we think about him, and that is our witness. The last few weeks, we've been giving consideration to uh, the delicate and difficult subject of the seven seals and then the seven trumpets, and next year we'll get into at one point just a reference on... Uh, the seven bowls, and what we're discovering is these are not three sevens turning into 21 chronological things, but they seem to be big picture, the same thing that we see from different angles three times, and so with the seven seals, you can see sort of these the summary on the screen right now. There's conquest, violence, oppression, death, martyrdom, catastrophic events, prayer, then power, and this is uh, what's going on in the world right now. From the perspective of the church, last week we talked about the seven trumpets, and you can see the summary of that, and this is the same kind of seven things going on, but from the perspective of the world, from the perspective of those who don't know Jesus yet, and what are they seeing? A lot of nature gone berserk, and then frightening, gruesome, hellish, torture and destruction, frightening, gruesome, hellish, war and death, and that is the world we're alive in right now. There's a lot of what we talked about already in this series, thalipsis this crushing pressure that occurs when opposing forces are coming into contact with each other. And God's kingdom, the first Christmas, the first Easter, introduced a revolutionary move spiritually upon our earth. And the kingdom of darkness is resisting it. It's defeated already. But the implementation of God's coming kingdom is bringing out a response from darkness of resistance and uprising. And so how do we respond, and where do we find ourselves in that? There's a lot of questions that come up as we consider the reality of our world right now. These questions were very real for the first Christians 2,000 years ago who heard this letter. In fact, when they heard the first seals, they, I'm sure, were thinking, well, this does sound like the world that we're in. And so that's why at the end of chapter 6, as the sixth seal is opened, the final question is, who can stand? Essentially, who can make it through this? And so chapter 7, between the sixth and seventh seals, there's an interlude. And chapter 7 answers that question. Who can stand? Well, the, the lamb. Jesus says that he's going to seal his followers, and they will be able to be carried through Philipsis into his kingdom. Now, the seven seals and the seven trumpets have a similar pattern in that After the first six, there's an interlude, and then we come to an interesting seventh. So what's the interlude like in the trumpets? After the first six trumpets, there's another question. It's not written there, but I think it's the question everybody should be wondering, because after the sixth trumpet is sounded, there's all kinds of nature gone berserk going on, and then these hellish, gruesome scenes of war and torment and death. And then it says this the remaining people still did not repent. And so I think the question, if, if there was one, is, well, what would it take uh, for people on earth to actually repent? Can they repent? The first question in the seals is, is there hope for us? But after six trumpets, the question then is, is there hope for them? Yeah. Have you ever wondered that about our world? Yeah. And so the interlude that we find in chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11 helps bring an answer to the question of, can our world possibly repent? Is there actually hope for them? So turn with me, if you have your scriptures with you, to Revelation chapter 10. We're going to be sort of going briefly and hovering over chapter 10. We'll drop down in a couple places quickly. And then we're going to spend more time going through chapter 11. And then as we conclude today, I want to bring three things from 10 and 11 that you absolutely cannot miss. Uh, It's so important that we grasp this because this is part of answering the question or seeing what Jesus wants us to see in this text. So the first part of chapter 10 begins with this impressive angel coming out of the heavens and having a scroll in his hand. There's some kind of message in the scroll and John's attention is called to this angel. Look to verse 9 says this, so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. Doesn't sound like food, but that's how he's supposed to respond to it. And the angel carries on by saying this, it will turn your stomach sour or bitter, but in your mouth it will be (laughs) as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my mouth was turned sour. Isn't that interesting? What do we have here? An angel coming from heaven with a scroll. So it contains a message. Think of this, a message from heaven, a message from God. It represents truth. And we know from scripture, there's plenty of occurrences in the Old Testament where it talks about the sweetness of God's word to our taste, right? His words are like honey, But truth sometimes is hard to accept, isn't it? We could put it this way. Sometimes it's hard to digest truth. And that's the experience John is invited into here. He's to take this message of truth from heaven, from God's throne. He's to to take it into himself. He's to eat it, invest it into his life. And at first it's sweet, but then it produces a bitterness. I'm sure even in John's experience He's probably in his late 80s at this point as he's penning this letter and he's probably reflecting on the reality of this. He's thinking some maybe 50 years earlier or so when he was walking the dusty streets of the ancient world with Jesus himself and he would listen to him teach. He would hear his words and it would be sweet to him. And where is John now? On Patmos, imprisoned for that same word. He's in a bitter experience because of the word truth has a sweetness to it but it also has a hardness there's something difficult at times to accept you and i have experienced that and certainly the world around us uh, doesn't always cozy up to truth does it why because there's a bitterness to it now The angel gives an instruction in verse 11. Then I was told, you must prophesy, again, about many people, nations, languages, and kings. I want you to remember about the word prophesy here. Many of us have been conditioned to think that the word prophecy in Scripture only means prediction. When in fact, that is a very, very small percentage of times that prophecy means prediction. Prophecy, biblically, primarily means a, a proclamation or a declaration of God's word. So here we find John receiving a scroll, a message, truth from God that he's to internalize and then what? Speak it out. So what's the summary of chapter 10? It's this. And I think this speaks to John. I think this spoke to the first church 2,000 years ago. I think it speaks to you and I today. Internalize God's message. Speak God's message. What is John told to do? Eat it and then proclaim it. And I think there's the same kind of call for you and I. Can you think what it would have been like for those first followers 2,000 years ago? They're being pressured on all sides. They're probably beginning to feel a little intimidated about speaking out the word of God because they've heard about 40,000 who died just a couple years earlier for that same word. And here comes an important reminder to them. No, don't listen to the bullying voices and the pressure around you. Yes, there's lipsis but internalize God's truth and continue to speak God's truth. Now, let's move into chapter 11 together. We're going to go verse by verse as quickly as we can through much of this, and I I hope that we'll kind of gain some of the understanding that is available to us about some of the symbols and important things that live in this text. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. What does measure my temple mean? It's scripture's way of saying consider My people. At this point, when John is writing this text, this is after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So he is well aware that the temple is gone. But now he's being told, measure the temple. John is well aware that there's a new temple. Who is the new temple? Scripture is full of it in the New Testament. You and I have become the temple of the Spirit of God. And so the attention right away, Internalize the message, speak the message. Now, consider the people of God. Remember the question is, is there hope for the world around us? And so all of this is part of helping answer that. You need to consider the people of God. But exclude, verse two, the outer court, do not measure it because that has been given to the Gentiles or non-Jewish people, people who are of the nations who do not know God yet. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy, again, not predict, declare God's truth, for 1,260 days. Have you done the math? What does that equal? 42 months. Three and a half years. Three and a half is half of seven It's 42 months. There's something important here for us just to pick up. 42 is a number that appears elsewhere in Scripture, and it has some meaning, and it has some importance. We're going to find out later on in Revelation, in fact, in chapter 12, that the dragon seeks to harass the followers of the Lamb for a period of 42 months. Daniel uses the number 42 months twice. Matthew talks about there being 42 generations from Abraham Think about the third tree in our story of God and five trees. To Jesus, the cross, the fourth tree, 42 generations. And maybe the most important thing we're to catch here is that Elijah, for three and a half years or 42 months, that's the period of time that it did not rain and the nations were being called to repentance. So what's the meaning of 42 months or the the figure that's there? This is representing the time between Jesus' first coming and his final coming. This is the period of time that God's people are finding themselves pressured. And how do we know that? Remember, the the temple is being measured. Consider God's people. But outside of the courts of God's people, what's happening? The Gentiles are harassing. They're creating a ruckus there. So we understand, oh, okay, this is a period of time between Jesus' first coming and his final coming. Now, uh, verse 4, these are the two, uh, sorry, I forgot this in in verse 3. These two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. Um, If you've read through some of the Old Testament, you realize, okay, sackcloth, not very comfortable, but there's clear meaning here, associated with two things. Sackcloth was the clothing, number one, of prophets, and number two is the clothing of repentance. So again, we're having this messaging coming to us of there's something important that God needs to speak through his people, and the result that we're hoping for is what? Repentance. And again, that speaks to the question that we came out of chapter 9 with. Can anybody in the world repent? Like, will they ever repent? Is there hope for the world to repent at some point? Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands before the Lord of the earth. What do we think of when we think of olive trees? Olives produce olive oil. Scripture speaks of oil as a representation of God's Spirit, the anointing of God's Spirit. So there's two witnesses who are marked by the Spirit of God and their lampstands. We've looked at lampstands earlier in this book. What do lampstands do? They bear light. So these two witnesses, in an important way, bear the light of Jesus into their dark world and they do it in the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. Let's move to verse 5. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Ooh, they sound protected, don't they? Verse 6. These men have the power, and this is important. Pay attention to the imagery going on here. The men have the power to shut up the skies so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. Does that sound familiar? And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Does that sound familiar? I think if we're just reading with our eyes open, we realize there are two key characters from the Old Testament we're intended to think about with these references, aren't we? Who are we supposed to think about? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Now, do your homework on your own time and read a little bit more about Moses and Elijah sometime. But what do they have in common? Both of them served God faithfully in a context where the leading influence on earth was actively resisting God. For Moses, it was Pharaoh. For Elijah, it was Ahab. Now, did that sound familiar to what the church was facing 2,000 years ago? Was the active leading influence on earth resisting God? Well, the emperor and the Roman Empire itself were doing a pretty nasty job of that. I mean, they were doing quite well. And so there has to be a message for the church. You find yourselves in a situation just like Moses did, just like Elijah did. And look how God worked faithfully through their faithfulness. There seems to be a call to faithful service for God, faithful witness. Now, we're talking about Moses, Elijah, the church 2,000 years ago. Uh, I wonder if any of us happen to think that we might be alive in a time where we're trying to serve God faithfully in a context where the leading influences on earth are resisting God. So does this speak to us today, right now? Is it relevant in this moment? Absolutely, it is. Let's move to verse 7. Now, when they finished their testimony or prophesying, declaring the word of God, the beast that comes up from the abyss or the bottomless pick. I almost said pickle. The bottomless pickle. That, If it's the right kind of pickle, would be amazing, but uh, not a sweet one. Thank you. Um, we'll attack them and overpower and kill them. Who's doing the killing here? The beast. This is a good reminder for us that in spite of how ugly humanity can be at times, our enemy is not flesh and blood. People, when they're at their worst, are not your enemy. There are dark, sinister forces working behind the scenes to inspire those kind of activities and things occurring on earth. Into verse 8 Their bodies, so now these two witnesses have been killed, they will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called. Isn't it nice of Revelation this time to actually say, hey, this is figurative? <laughs> Uh, figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was also crucified. Where was the Lord crucified? Jerusalem. So what do we know of Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem? Sodom, the most corrupt. Egypt, the most oppressive. Jerusalem, the most rebellious. Rebellious to the point of being the site where humanity kills God himself. Whoa. Whoa. Look at verse 9. For three and a half, now we've looked at the three and a half before, but up till now it's been years, listen to this, three and a half days. Well, this sounds brief, doesn't it? That's important and that's good to pay attention to. For three and a half days, men from every nation, tribe, language, uh, and around the world will gaze upon their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other's each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on earth. This is in the ancient world and even in the Middle East today. This would be a, a picture of utter you know, shaming and humiliation. You're supposed to bury the dead within 24 hours in that context, in that culture. So just letting the bodies rot in the street for three and a half days was just this awful scene. Three and a half days, not three and a half years. Brief, brief Brief, that's the point. Witnesses may appear defeated, but the story is not done yet. It's brief. Listen to verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Dead, appearing dead for a brief period of time, but then a new life comes to them. If you were to look at 2,000 years of church history, can you identify the reality that there have been many oppressive movements on earth that have tried to snuff out Christianity entirely? And how are they doing? I can't remember where I was this week, but I I overheard somebody, you know, they were using fairly foul language about all kinds of things. And at one point, they, they cursed by saying, Jesus Christ. And I don't know that I'm as offended as some people are by that. I actually smiled afterwards. And I'm like, his name continues on, doesn't it? People can, you just can't get rid of him. People continue testifying to his name. Uh, if somebody is inconsequential, why use their name as a curse? Uh, humanity keeps trying to press out. And it's not, sorry, it's not just humanity. It's the, the way of the dragon, trying to press out the work of God around the world. And what happens? He keeps living. He's got resurrection life, and that resurrection life fills his people. The Roman Empire was actively, at the time of the writing of Revelation, was actively trying to kill many, many, many Christians. 200 years after the writing of Revelation, the mass population of the Roman world is now Christian. And the emperor himself has now converted to Christianity. They tried to take it out, and look what happened. Life was breathed into the church, and it rose. And there was what kind of response from the people? Terror! And then repentance. And there was a great move of God, even in ancient Rome. I mean, if you could have been in the room with those seven churches receiving this letter and been able to tell them 200 years from now, the emperor is going to confess the name of Jesus, they say, What? There's no way. They're killing us like crazy right now. We have to see the big picture that God sees. Some of us only see the finiteness of our lifetimes. But God is doing something big and significant over generations. In the years 1000 and into 1100 in the Iberian Peninsula, which is where Spain is today, Christianity was banned. Christians were deported to Africa today. If you travel there, what do you find on the Iberian Peninsula? Churches and Christians and the faith of Jesus is present and growing. In Japan in the 1600s, Christianity was banned. If you travel to Japan today, it's not the dominant faith, but what do you find? Churches, faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is present and growing in Japan today. In Madagascar in the mid-1800s, Christianity was banned. 100,000 people were killed for naming the name of Jesus. Today, if you go to Madagascar, you will find that over 50% of the population follows Jesus. In China... Many of us are aware of what's been going on over the last couple centuries. In the late 1800s, Christianity began um, becoming outlawed. Now it's government-run. But there is an underground church in uh, estimation of maybe 100 million people in China today where there's not supposed to be. You see, the enemy will try to suppress something, but you can't suppress a living Lord who's conquered the grave. And... Something might be snuffed out in our day and time right here. And guess what? That's okay. We'll be fine, thanks. Why? Because we're sealed. We'll be through. And God's going to renew his work here anyways. In Iran, listen to this, in the mid-4th century, there was a 42-year period of persecution that began. Um, And how did it start? The government decided they were going to tax Christians double to make it uncomfortable for them. And that didn't go over so well, so they started killing them. And there's been, it's been a difficult place to live for Christians, I think, for quite a long time, don't you? Today, there's over 80 million people in Iran. It's not an easy place to be a legitimate follower of Jesus. But if you listen to some of the people who are trying to estimate how many Christians live in Iran today, radical followers of Jesus, the number is in the millions. But it's not very public, because you, you know they, they can't advertise like we do. Let me read verse 11 again. But after three and a half days, so after... From heaven's perspective, a brief period of time. A breath of life from God entered who? His witnesses, his church. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Where have we heard come up here before? In Revelation chapter 4. Come up and behold what's going on in the heavenly realm right now. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. This is the only time in the book of Revelation that humans are associated with clouds. Can you think of another time in the Gospels where two figures are uh, connected with a cloud-like experience? Which two figures? Well, Moses and Elijah in particular. When are they in a cloud? With Jesus at the transfiguration. And what happens, what's the most important thing that happens at the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah are there. They represent the law. They represent the prophets. They represent the whole Old Testament. And God speaks, this is my son, Jesus. He's there. He's revealed. Listen to him. The word must be internalized, must be shared. they went up into heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. So what's the summary of chapter 11? If we we're to look just at the big picture of chapter 11, shine the light of Jesus faithfully. John chapter 9, Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 5, he said this, you are the light of the world. So is Jesus contradicting himself? No, he's He's obviously acknowledging, now I live in you, therefore you will reflect my light. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people to see, that they may see your good deeds, and what's the result? They would praise your Father in heaven. Chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 10 internalize the word speak the word chapter 11 shine the light of Jesus faithfully three things that we can't miss from chapters 10 and 11 the first is this the most important priority on earth right now is how are the stock markets doing how are my investments doing uh the most important priority on right on earth right now is inflation isn't it uh, Laura caught a bunch of fish the other day, so I thought, let's have, like, this is really fun. We're going to make fish and chips. Ch- There's a phrase people say, as cheap as chips, and we're like, yeah, chips should be cheap. I'll go buy some potatoes. I bought six russet potatoes for $9. $9. Clearly, the most important priority on Earth right now is inflation. No. The most important priority on Earth right now is a charitable tax exemption. Or how about charitable tax refunds? How about agendas that are infiltrating our school systems? How about our need for a new government? No, 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 no. The most important priority on earth right now is the message and ministry of Jesus. Where does our focus tend to go? Elsewhere. Where does it belong? The message and ministry of Jesus. That's what we see in chapter 10 and chapter 11. This is the most important thing. Stay on track. How do we know this is important? Listen to how chapter 10 starts. I'm going to read some of this to you. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of seven thunders spoke. This guy sounds impressive. Impressive. This guy sounds important. There's a lot of detail given to this very mighty angel, isn't there? Why is this angel doing what he's doing? This is important for the church 2,000 years ago to see, and it's important for us to to see today. This reflects the level of priority, the mission, (laughs) mission, message, ministry, all the M words, of Jesus is according to heaven's perspective. This is the kind of representative they send as a messenger. Now... Some of you might say, well, if it's so important, why doesn't God himself show up in chapter 10 doing this? The reality is God showed up 2,000 years ago already because it's such an important priority. But in these chapters, there's this mighty angel, very vividly described for us. Why? So that we'd see this matters massively from heaven's point of view. Here's a summary of chapter 10 and 11 for you. I want you to see if there's a common word or idea that lives in this. Chapter 10 and 11 are about this, a messenger with a message for a messenger to relay the message to messengers to bring the message to a world desperately needing a message from God. If you do your homework on that, it's all there. That's what we see. The first messenger is the angel. The next one is John. Then the two witnesses who are the church. The world needs the message. What word, what idea keeps showing up? There's a message and there are messengers. Massively important. Massively important. The most important priority on earth right now is not the other things that have concerned us this week. It is the message and ministry of Jesus. Number two. I just wanted to encourage you today, so here's, here it is. You could die. In fact, you will. Chapter... Ten and well, chapter eleven especially brings up the subject of death, doesn't it? These witnesses are killed in an awful way. Um, I want to illustrate something. How many of you in the room today would say that you have a friend or a family member who's had a cancer battle? You Just raise your hand. Keep it up high. You've a friend or a family. Now look around the room. That's almost. All of us. It's most of us. In the early church, almost every single family in the early church who was receiving this letter had a friend or a relative they knew of who had died for the name of Jesus. And so when Jesus is sending his church on mission again through chapters 10 and 11, he's got to bring up the sobering subject of death again. Because it's in their mind they're already thinking about their lost loved ones who refused to compromise on the name of Jesus the early church and you and I today are confronted with this question through this text what would you and I die for now I want to try to put something in a visual way for you to consider Let's consider Christianity as three concentric circles. All the issues of our faith are kind of in them. At number one, we have the essential core of our faith. Number two, uh, that circle there, we have expressions and experiences in our faith. And number three, we have matters that really matter to us, don't they? So, what's at the central core of our faith? Well, Jesus and the gospel, non negotiable, at the core. It's essential to our faith. Number two, we have expressions and experiences within our faith. So we have worship, communion, baptism, Bible, prayer, fellowship. And number three, we have matters that matter. What kind of things might be in there? Creation, sanctity of life, family, gender, sexuality, social and cultural issues. You could throw in issues of tax-related things or politics there too if you wanted to. What are we being called to die for as we look at this circle? What are we being called to die for? Let's just state the obvious. I think all of us would say, well, my my family, of course, I would die for them. Okay, let's move that to the side. Yes, you're all good people. Thank you for considering dying for your family. What would you die for as you look at this? I think we'd all say, well, it's got to be what's at the center, isn't it? Now, I have to point out that some of us in the faith live... Or act as if number three is what they're called to die for. Some treat number three issues as the hill they are willing to die on. And in so doing they discredit and do damage to their witness of what? Number one. And that's where our call is to be most pure. Jesus clarifies... This for us. He actually makes it quite obvious. I think in Mark chapter eight, if anyone wants to be my follower, they must face the subject and reality of death right away. They must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is radical when Jesus says this. You and I, uh, you you know, when you watch a movie and you, as the viewer of the movie, have you you have information that certain characters in the movie don't have. Sometimes we read the Bible that way. You need to remember when the disciples are hearing this, they don't know that Jesus is going to die on a cross. This is the first time crosses are being talked about, at least biblically, with the disciples. And so he says to them, you want to be my follower? See the Roman crosses over there? See those criminals hanging on it? You get your cross. Then you follow me. Shocking! You want me to consider dying a shameful, humiliating death? For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for what? Number three issues? Or a number one thing. What's in number one? Jesus and the gospel. What does Jesus say? But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet lose their soul? Is anything worth more than a soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes with his Father's glory with the holy angels. Here today, in our comfortable Comox Valley context, I have to be honest, it is actually less about will I die for this message because probably most of us won't ever actually have to face that. But it is more, am I willing to be not liked for this? And again, I remind you, not liked for number one, not number three. Some, sometimes Christians can kind of go out of their way to pick some fights in number three world. And then they do damage to how they represent number one how they represent number one. Don't pick fights that you don't need to. Don't go out searching for those kind of conflicts. Be comfortable and confident in what Jesus clearly defines for number three realities. But give your focus to number one. It's the most important thing going on earth right now. Chapter 10 and, chapter 10 and 11 are preparing the church then and now not to be liked remember how they died shamed and humiliated shamed and humiliated i think some of us if we're honest would rather be dead than be shamed and humiliated cuz that sounds like not being liked friends i think we have to we did a series i think a year ago or maybe 2 years ago from the book of first peter it's all about the fact that you and i are different not cuz we're trying to be number 3 different but because we're number 1 different The world isn't going to get that. They're they're not always going to like that. So we have to settle the issue of death. I told you I wanted to encourage you today. Three things we can't miss. The most important priority on earth right now is the message and ministry of Jesus. Number two, you could die. In fact, you will. Why is that important? Once someone... Settles the will I live for this, or will I die for this, or will I be liked for this, or disliked for this issue. Um, Once they settle that, and that matters less to less to someone than the cause that they're committed to, astonishing things are possible. Why was the church so explosively powerful under the philipsis of the Roman world of the day? Because they didn't care if they were going to be liked. For number one things. They didn't care if they were going to die for number one things. They knew they were sealed. They knew they were carried through. They were already dead. And they did astonishing things. Why is the church exploding in China right now? In Iran right now? Because they're already dead. I fear we might have too much life in us. Third thing we can't miss. Why two witnesses? Why two witnesses? Because, together, and this isn't a spelling error, um, I'm introducing a new word. (laughs) In the Old Testament, two is a very important number associated with credibility or verification. If there was a court case, there had to be two witnesses to something. Uh, in deuteronomy it states in various ways that the testimony of two is true and jesus when he sends out the 72 on his mission does so how he sends them in in pairs there is something significant that happens it's about the witness so this is an echo very clearly it's not about literally there's only two witnesses who are going to do their work in the end times no it's about the church not being alone in their witness nobody just kind of going off into their mission field all by themselves you know what i've discovered is that when somebody has a friend with them they've got more courage have you ever noticed that if i described a very scary scene maybe if i was to take you into the forest and say uh, could you stay here overnight by yourself most of us would be like "Eh, no thanks um I mean, we've got some wild, rugged ones in the midst. They'd be like, sure. But most of us, no thanks, wouldn't, wouldn't want to. How about if I gave you $100,000? For many people, it'd be like, I'm still not. <laughs> Something might eat me tonight. I'm, I don't need $100,000. Thank you very much. Well, if we said um, Bear Grylls is going to be with you overnight, would you do that? Oh, I could do that. $100,000 did not change it. What changed it? You weren't alone. You're with somebody else who knew. Two matters In this text why so that you and I won't be alone in the mission of God in our vision booklet and in our church family we talk about something called gospel intentionality together that what you're doing in our world in the Comox Valley here don't don't do it alone how do we want to do mission as a church in groups with groups of friends reaching out do it as personally and as relationally as possible As we head into the Christmas season, I'm hearing about our groups that are doing acts of outreach together, Christmas outreach. And I applaud the group. I'm hearing about groups that are doing things for other groups of people in the community. I applaud that. It's just fantastic. But if you had to weigh things out, I, my, if I'm honest, my attention keeps being drawn to the stories I'm hearing of some of the groups who are like, and we're giving our focus to this neighbor, somebody that we live close to. Because if I had the choice of giving some of my time, which is valuable, to serving at a soup kitchen, and those are important priorities, or helping one of my neighbors, which one am I going to be among? The Word became flesh and dwelt among. What's the starting point for our mission and our purpose? Who are you among? Among and then be among and be on mission there as personally and as relationally as possible. Now, we have to land the plane in this text. I didn't read the last verses in the first part of chapter 11. Remember, I wanted to encourage you. Here's how it ends. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. Very encouraging. And a tenth of the city collapsed. Also encouraging. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Very, very encouraging as well. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That last line is very encouraging. They were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That's Old Testament language for they repented. Remember the question was, is there hope for them? Like chapter nine ends with, all these awful calamities happened and they still didn't repent but then what happens in chapter 10 a message is given it's internalized it's spoken out what happens in chapter 11 a faithful witness to jesus light faithfully bearing the light of jesus in the anointing and power of the holy spirit and now what happens there is repentance in the world now the numbers sound a bit awful at first A tenth of the city collapses in seven thousand people if you breeze by that you think well that sounds awful Hang on a minute. Think about the context this is in. We're thinking about Scripture here. We're thinking about what these first churches knew about Old Testament stories. In Sodom, it could have only been saved if 10 righteous could be found. In Isaiah 6, it says that God would save one-tenth of the city, and then nine-tenths would fall. In Amos chapter 5, it says God says a city of a thousand would have 100 left, and then a city of 10 would have 10 left. What's going on in this text, in chapter 11 of Revelation right now? We're, we're, we're discovering it's now flipped. There's a reversal. Instead of 10% saved, now 90% saved. In uh, writings about Elijah, we find that he bemoans that only 7,000 are faithful and the rest are damned. Now, only 10th a tenth are destroyed, not 90%. Only 7,000 are destroyed, not the vast majority. Why? There's widespread spread repentance. How has that come about? Something has changed dramatically because of Jesus. Friends, the first Christmas, the first Easter changed our world forever. Here's the reality, and this is the gospel. Jesus is the true Lord and Savior and God of our world. Death, evil, and sin are in fact defeated, and God's new world is beginning. Yes, there's thalipsis. but is there hope for us? Yes, Jesus shows up and says, Behold, I'm sealing you. You will get through. Yes, there's thalipsis, and it wreaks havoc on our world. And will the world repent? Is there actually hope for them? Chapter 10 and chapter 11 say, Yes, there is. In chapter 7, Jesus in Thalipsis seals us. In chapters 10 and 11, he sends us. And the result on the other side of you and I faithfully bearing witness to his word repentance. How does this all happen? Scrolls, Moses and Elijah, lampstands, olive trees. Things that I think you understand a lot clearer now, would you stand with me? I want to pray for us as we enter into the mission of the world. Is this the King of Kings song? We sang a song earlier. We don't sing it that often. I'm not in charge of picking the songs. If it was me, we'd sing this song a lot. But we've got five minutes. Please take five minutes with me. This song powerfully celebrates and declares our gospel message. Remember the scroll with the message of God? Sweet and bitter. It's the word that your soul needs. It's the word that your tongue needs to carry. Because it's the word that our world needs. Let's sing and declare this together today. you, if you're comfortable in this moment, just hold out your hand in a receiving posture. I want to just pray over you. Jesus, we acknowledge you in our lives, the greatness of your gospel. And if you're the one we're following, we must heed your words where you said, take up your cross. take a moment, maybe even 10, 15 seconds just to do business with God on that issue. Might it be, Lord, that if in moments like these we decide that we would die for Jesus and his gospel, may it be that we would find that we truly live for it. And to do so, we confess our Our need first of you, God. We can't do this on our own. We can't follow you into the Comox Valley this week on our own. We need the anointing of your spirit. Thank you that you reside within us, you move upon us. And we confess, secondly, we need others. Thank you that you put us side by side with others and that our, our witness, our testimony together with others matters. Father, we pray for repentance in the Comox Valley that this coming year our community would have its eyes opened in fresh ways that they'd realize the narrative they've been sold about what God must be like is wrong and that Jesus is the perfect picture of what God is like would you bring that message into our community would you put it on our tongues and in our in our friendship groups as we go into doing things at work and at school and as we participate in recreation in the community. May the message and the ministry of Jesus be alive in our hearts as good news, though it may come out of our mouths in feeble, fumbly kind of ways. Your spirit is at work, and we acknowledge that. We go now in the strength and grace of Jesus. I pray your blessing over each in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.